Welcome to St. James Lutheran Church in Chicago. My name is Pastor Joel Hess, and uh, what a joy it is to preach the good news to you. May God bless your ears and heart that you have the hope and peace that we have in Jesus Christ, and that the Lord changes your view of the world, that you see things as He does with the love of His Son, Jesus. If you want to support His mission here at St. James through Chicago, go to stjames-lutheran.org and donate. Thank you for listening. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah laughed. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Grab a seat, preferably next to a fan. So as I said, we're going to be looking at these uh, really famous characters, events of the Old Testament in more detail. I really like doing that because... To me, um, we get it wrong a lot when we just sort of assume that the Old Testament is law and the New Testament is gospel. In the Old Testament, God seems to be mean, and in the New Testament, He suddenly becomes nice, you know, et cetera. And I think also, as a kid, you learn about these great characters like uh, Abraham, Noah, and and, uh, David, uh, Deborah, Ruth, um, Hannah, et cetera. And you get these nice little snippets of stories, and that's good. But when you really actually read the stories and what actually happened and more about these characters, you discover they're not so clean, perfect. Just like your comics, right? When you're a kid, you love watching Superman, Aquaman, all these perfect little stories there. Uh, But then uh, Marvel came out with all these wonderful movies, kind of going to the real comic books and getting into the real lives of these heroes. They're not so perfectly clean, you know? It's the same thing. For God's people in the Old Testament, these are these wonderful heroes. I'm sorry, but they're not perfect in any way. In fact, you might find they're a lot like you, and that might not be comforting because they're sinners. But what is comforting is that God's grace reigns supreme back then as it does in our life. So we look at Abraham and Sarah, and they really go together. Uh, Abraham and Sarah. It's just a wonderful couple. Every time something happens to one, it happens to both. God mentions both all the time. They're this beautiful, uh, like Adam and Eve, a couple uh, that God does amazing things through. This team, one might say, of Abraham and Sarah. And they're very important because they are, if you'll uh, talk, if you have Jewish friends, the children of Abraham. Like that is how you determine whether or not you are one of the promised people. You are related physically back to Abraham, the sons and daughters of Abraham. That's what it means to be Israel for the Jews today, is that you're connected physically to Abraham and uh, Sarah. And we'll see why that's actually important. So it's a very important figure, Abraham and Sarah. You hear this all the time. Jesus talks about Abraham. The Jews in Jesus' day compared uh, Jesus to Abraham in a bad way, etc. So who is this Abraham and Sarah? Well, they're not perfect. They, they weren't, do you know this? They weren't always Jewish. <laughs> you know that they were not always God believers. They weren't just born that way. They're two figures who come down descendancy from Noah, and uh, there's Abraham, and uh, he uh, marries Sarah in chapter 11 of Genesis is where this story begins. And they weren't even living in the land of what we would call Israel. They had really nothing great going on, one might say. They were nomads, which is not 
a uh, good thing. You don't have your own land. You wander from place to place. You sort of mooch off the land and annoy people, quite frankly, right or wrong. Kind of like um, uh, today, I think you've got gypsies in Europe. They kind of go from here and here. They live, that's their theory. They don't want to have land. But for societies back then, that wasn't something to applaud, you know, and, and like today, people don't like that. That's what they were, nomading, tenting from place to place, minding their own, doing whatever, and God came to them. This is really important. They didn't have some great uh, thing about them that drew God to them. Never once does it mention that, that Abraham was some great believer, and God awarded him and said, you're going to get a promise. But out of nowhere, God takes Abraham and Sarah and says this in chapter 12 of Genesis. If you have a Bible, read along. We will be getting pew Bibles uh, soon, within the month, hopefully, and actual hymnals that we'll actually use. Uh, Chapter 12, now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation. Look at this. He's not already. He's nothing. God's going to do all the making. And that should remind you of Matthew. At the end of Matthew, Jesus says, go, just like God says to Abram, to his disciples, and go into every nation, and what does he say? Make disciples, right? By baptizing teaching, which we just did earlier with the young Harris here. So it's the same language, chapter 12 to Jesus. It's the same God. It's the same theme. You're going to go from your comfortable place, right, from your family to a, house, to a land that I'm going to show you, and I'm going to make you into a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and, those, and you will be a blessing. And those who bless you, I'll bless. Those who curse you, I will curse. So I got your back, God says. And then he says this. In you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So this idea of evangelism or God loving the whole world, it's not a New Testament idea. Jesus didn't come up with this, although in a sense he did. He is God doing the speaking. He tells Abraham, this is what's going to happen. You're going to be a great nation. And in you, in other words, a kid, through that kid, the whole world, not just your family, but all families. All cultures, languages, religion, people in other religions, lifestyles, political opponents, whatever it is, all families will be blessed through a son of Abraham. Great promise. Abraham must have been just lifted up, right? Wow. God's going to make my name great. He's going to bless me. I mean, he must have been thinking of just just large pieces of land, a large farm, all these kids, because that's why you have kids, by the way, kids. You ask, did you just have me so you could make me work? And parents say, no, but really we did. That's why you do have kids. That's what he's hoping, this great nation. People are going to think that Abraham's so successful and fruitful. Everything he touches turns to gold, etc. Right? What a great promise. Would you not like to have this promise from God himself? So Abraham gets this promise. He goes. He goes toward this land that God's going to show him. And wherever he is, he's going through Egypt. Now, Egypt at that time, uh, many times it would waver up and down, but would be really the top country in that region uh, between Egypt and Assyria. And Egypt was quite powerful then, definitely larger than a bunch of nomads. And Abraham and Sarah come through there. 
Abraham immediately, and Sarah, by the way, see, they, they're, they're a good team and a bad team. They both, they both do great things together and dumb things together. They come through Egypt. Abraham, after just receiving this promise, realizes he's among like these powerful Egyptians, and he actually says to his wife, this is pretty good, by the way, you're hot. So you're, you're a hot item here, and uh, they're going to want to take you to, you know, they're, they're going to kill me or something to get you because you're so good looking. I don't know if this is a way of scheming to get her to come to his idea or not, his plan, but uh, you're good looking and I need to do this. He said, I'm, I need to, you need to say that you're my sister. So does that sound like a believing person? Does that sound like someone who's really trusting that God's got your back, that his promises are going to come true? No. It sounds like someone who absolutely forget what God said. I need to figure things out for myself. I can't trust him taking care of things. I need to do it. So you scheme, right? So you need to be called my sister. So they do it. She's my sister. I don't know what they're doing. They come into town. They go to some parties or whatever, you know. And next thing you know, uh, I don't think they thought of the continuation of this plan. Because pretty soon, Pharaoh is like, got the hots for her. And she's coming into his house. Um, and God begins to punish Pharaoh. Because like he said, someone touches you, I'm touching them. Someone, some, some, someone does something bad to me, I'm doing something bad to them. God has their back. Pharaoh realizes this in some way. You can read the story more further there in chapter 13. And finally realizes, like, Abraham, why didn't you tell me you're, she's your wife? So he's like, what's wrong with you, dude? I mean, literally, the Pharaoh's like, man, this is really weird. You know, I mean, please go back uh, because your God is punishing me. And why wouldn't you just tell me this in the first place? But this, this doesn't sound like you. God says, I'll provide. I'll take care of you. It's going to be okay. Trust me. But we don't. We get scared a little bit immediately after we leave church here, and we begin to be frightened, figure out our own ways of doing things so we can survive. We just live like survival, like Abraham and Sarah were about to do. So they come out of this situation. Does God just forget them and say, man, you guys are the worst like uh, beginners of a nation you could possibly pick. I'm going to go pick somebody else. No. He tells them the promise again. And you're going to see that from 12 to 22, the story of Abraham, God, Abraham and Sarah are going to keep on falling down, screwing up, being faithless, and God's going to keep on reminding them of the promise. Sound like you? In your life in Christ? We have the promises of forgiveness, eternal life. It's going to be okay. We sin and fall down. We leave here. I'm going to do better this week, Lord. God does not forsake. He continues to tell us the promise. That's what church service is, is God, not you, God coming to you and proclaiming that promise once again. And he does it here in chapter 14. Let's skip on to, uh, yeah, to 15. Um, God says, fear not, Abram, I am your shield, your reward shall be very great. And then Abraham says this. God promises him again, says, look up at the stars of heaven, see all those stars. That's how many kids you're going to have. God keeps on saying this to him. It's been a couple years. How many kids does Abraham have? Fat zero. And, God, and Abraham looks at him and says, Lord God, what will you give me? Because I'm childless. You keep on talking about this great nation and all these kids. I don't even have one kid right now. It's my servant. You know, there's a guy that's going to inherit all I have. I have no heir. 
Abraham says, Behold, you've given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And the Lord says, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And then he takes him outside and shows him the stars of the sky. So God keeps on repeating the promise. His words keep on giving Abraham life. Even though he's not seeing anything in front of him, Abraham has to trust his words. And that's where you get the phrase, Abraham heard that promise, he believed, and God counted it to him as righteousness. Abraham did not do great things. He screwed up. He tried. He went up. He went down. Like us. He believed God's promise. That's what belief looks like in God's promise, my friends. Abraham and Sarah, it doesn't look like everything they touch turns to gold. Well, it doesn't look like everything they do is like with a prayer beforehand. They're not going around happy and confident. You know, anytime anything bad happens, oh, don't worry. It's going to work out just right. No. They look a lot like us. In effect, quite frankly, their marriage and their outside life. They don't live as the perfect believers. But God lives as the perfect giver and keeps providing for them. So God gives them this promise. Then what happens? Next chapter, after hearing this promise, after Abraham saying, I believe, a couple years go by. They are in their 90s. Now, it was a long time ago. I think people were healthier back then in your 90s, but you were not having kids in your 90s. They know God's promise is they're going to be a great nation. Doesn't seem like there's any kids happening, so what do they do? The two of them, by the way, that's why I just love this couple. They do everything together. They think through things together. They come up with crazy plans together. And guess what? Sarah realizes, you know what? Maybe we need to make this happen. We can't wait for God. Been there before? And so Sarah sees her servant Hagar. Well, yeah, she's not bad looking. And you have your first in vitro fertilization here. God, we can't wait for God to do it. We can't do it naturally, so we're going to make it happen. We have to move it ahead because we can't simply live under God's promise, which is a pretty common, I think, American problem. We have to force nature itself to do what we want it to do, even though it's not been given to you to do. And we'll see what happens when you do that. Abraham, sure enough, has Hagar. They have a child. Now, how do you think that relationship went? Sarah's the one that came up with the whole idea, by the way. Abraham, of course, was like, well, I guess if you want me to, uh, Sarah. <laughs> they have the child. Sarah can't stand Hagar because it doesn't work. Now, I know Hollywood can give you a lot of movies and TV where it all works. You can live like that and everybody's happy on TV. Yeah, absolutely. But reality does not work when you do things unnaturally. Does it? And it doesn't bring happiness and it all falls apart and someone gets hurt. And you know this because you've done it. So here's Hagar and Ishmael. They don't get along with Sarah. She kicks them out and they're by themselves. That's the result of our sin and our trying to do things on our own and not doing it under God's direction. Loneliness and hurt and pain. God comes to Hagar and Ishmael and loves them. And he takes care of our mess-ups. <laughs> he takes care of our orphans. He takes care of our screw-ups. He really does, and he takes care of us. 
and the junk we leave behind and the people we hurt and how we, maybe you've been that Hagar in Ishmael, by the way. The Lord comes to you too and loves you. What we see here in this story, though, is once again Abraham and Sarah not being the perfect believers, not just trusting God's promise because they don't, they don't have the patience for it, and instead doing it themselves. Paul uses this in Galatians as an example. He basically says there's two kinds of people. There's the people of the promise and the people of your own works. That make sense? There's the people of Isaac, who's going to be the promised child that comes out of God's timing and planning promise, and the people of Ishmael. And it doesn't mean that racially. He's not talking about them as human beings, but as ideas. And we all can struggle with this, can't we? And Paul basically is telling the Galatians who were trying to tell people that you are saved by your own works, that Jesus came to help us, but you also need to do something. And Paul would say, you sound like, Hag- you sound like Abraham and Sarah trying to get Hagar in their little dumb plan. Then there's the people who wait for the promise. That when Jesus says, you're forgiven, my righteousness is yours, you're absolutely saved by my work, not yours, you just sit there and let me give it to you, that, those are the people of the promise, those are the people that wait for the promise, those are the people of Isaac, is what Paul says. Does this make sense? This is huge, right? And Christianity and Jesus came to give us full promise. You are a child of God. Not because you do what child of God things are. Because you are, because he says so. He promises it. You are forgiven. Not because you deserve it. Not because you've done something to deserve his love. He gives it to you for free. This whole story, the whole Bible might be a story of ex nihilo, out of nothing. God only chooses nothing to make something. Nobody's to make somebody's. Unrighteousness to give full righteousness so that nobody else can take the credit. You feel a little more like Abraham and Sarah as couples, as individuals? God comes the final time. We just read it. Sam wrote, read this. The Lord appears to Abram by the oaks of Mamre. Good job, uh, Sam, with the, the Mamre. As he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day, like now, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord. He must have recognized those three people, which reminds you of what? We think of God, the Trinity. Abraham looked at that, and he must have the appearance of God. So he runs out, bows down. You'd only do this worshiping God. And he says, if I found favor in your sight, don't pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought out to you. Let us take care of you. And they say, yes. And he, of course, goes and tells Sarah, hey, make some cake. And you see him yelling out, like, come on, get some food here. Nicely. And then he goes out and gets some meat. So together, as this beautiful couple, they prepare some food for God. I really mean it. They do everything together, Abraham, Sarah. Even dumb things. So they sit down, and uh, they said to him, hey, where's uh, Sarah, your wife? I think it's also important to see, reading the whole Bible, it's, it gets a, terrible, a ridiculous rap by people who've never read it, 
it's literally chock full of women, women who are a really important part of God's story, both in being blessed and doing things. Full. You don't need to be some radical feminist to try to find and try to force little figures in here. It's everywhere. And this whole story is Abraham and Sarah together. When God thinks about them, Abraham, he thinks about Sarah. It's all one to God. When he sees human beings, it's all the same. Men and women, couples. So he says, where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, she's in the tent. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. So again, the promise. Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. It wasn't like a Eureka tent, you know, on your, when you're car camping. It's a gigantic place. Abraham and Sarah were, and uh, so she's listening. Abraham and Sarah, Moses tells us, were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. You guys can explain that to your kids later. You can't have kids. She's literally physically barren, and she's beyond age. It ain't happening. What's Sarah's response when she hears this? When she hears these divine, you know, God saying this, she laughs to herself and says, I'm worn out, and my husband's old. <laughs> Am I really going to have that sort of pleasure? The Lord says to Abraham, why does Sarah laugh and say, shall I indeed bear a child now that I'm old? Is anything too hard for the God? At the appointed time, I'm going to return to you about this time next year, and Sarah will have a son. Now, I love this laughter of a real person, a person of faith, but a person of struggles, Sarah. You could call it, I don't know if God's thinking about it as a, a disbelieving laugh. It's disbelieving, I suppose, but he doesn't chastise it. He just says, why are you laughing? But I love this laugh because guess what? Sarah gets it. That's ridiculous. It doesn't happen. That's impossible. And it's so crazy, I'm laughing that you're even saying this is going to happen. And I would say that's the laughter of the gospel. If you get the gospel, you will laugh because it's ridiculous. Because not only did Sarah have a son in her old age, which is hilarious, and if you saw 99-year-old Sarah walking around with a one-year-old, you'd laugh too, wouldn't you? But that is the gospel. Because if you think this son was miraculous and amazing and out of nothing God made something and had uh, Isaac, who by the way, when she had him, called him Isaac, which means? He laughs. Isaac has Jacob, Jacob, Israel, 12 tribes. And finally, after many years, a lot of waiting, the promise of God to Abraham that in you all the nations will be blessed, Jesus is born. Son of Abraham, son of David. Who has the last laugh? But that's nothing. <laughs> Because this Jesus who has everything gives it all away on the cross so that we who have nothing in our sins and our delusions and our lack of faith, we get everything in Christ. We who have nothing are given everything just like Abraham. And you know what? We get to laugh. That, that 
You should laugh every time you think about that. Me? Christ took my place on the cross? Jesus is still putting up with my disbelief? Jesus died for me? That should make you laugh. It's ridiculous. You're completely forgiven. There's nothing you have to do to make up your love. There's nothing you have to do to pay God back. It's just a pure gift. Salvation? That's hilarious. It's ridiculous. You're going to rise again? This old body's going to live forever? That's insane. That's hilarious. You should laugh. Every time you take communion, you should laugh. You're forgiving me again, God? <laughs> Every time you should think of those times where God takes care of you, should make you laugh. You love even me. May we be children of laughter. May you find solace in knowing that Abraham and, and Sarah, just like you, living by faith, not seeing it right in front of them, having to wait a long time, and absolutely living and dwelling by the grace of God. You are all Isaacs. And let us laugh as Isaacs. In Jesus' name, amen.